Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. In 1957, three years after the United States Supreme Court ruled segregated schools unconstitutional, a group of nine African-American students integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. They were met with a mob of angry white segregationists who disrupted the students' attempts to attend class for several days, ultimately requiring the presence of federal troops to get them into school for a full day. One of the students was Dr. Melba Patillo-Beals, who went on to become a successful journalist and college educator. She wrote about her experience as part of the Little Rock Nine in her memoir, Warriors Don't Cry. She joins us now to discuss her life story, the current age of misinformation, and the role of youth activism in addressing racial issues here in the U.S. Dr. Melba Patillo-Beals, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. When you and your eight peers were going to integrate Central High School for the first time, What was going through your mind? What did you see and feel and what do you remember? If you want to talk about just prior to the point at which we approached a mob, we were excited. We we talked about it. We thought that it would be a new area for us. We did not think we'd be welcomed at first. There was certainly indication by mobs that had gathered on the days before that this was not the place we'd be welcomed. If you're 15 and 14 and 16, you think that in time they will see that I am human They will see that I polished my saddle shoes. I got a long ponytail too, and I'm bright. And so um, I have always thought of myself as bright and able to take care of whatever came up academically. So I thought, okay, there'll be this initial period. I expected to hear the N word every now and then. What I did not expect was to see a mob carrying a rope, telling us off the bat that they were gonna kill us, that we were not gonna be going in their school. Now that very first day we didn't get in, a mob chased us. I only got to across the street from the school, directly in front of, huge mob. At first my mother and I came up behind this mob. We didn't even know what's going on. We thought, ha ha, perhaps it's great to welcome us or what's going on, you know? And we got chased out of there with uh, these guys with their ropes and almost got killed that day, almost got hanged. And I said, oopsie, you know, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. That made me totally rethink Central High School, going to Central High School. I thought, do I really want to do this? But now there was a lot of pressure. There was Martin Luther King. There was all of these people in the NAACP surrounding us. We were now, for all intents and purposes, little individual stars who were being interviewed by the press, talked to about our obligations, that kind of thing. So off we went for that second try. Second time we were, we were escorted into school by police. And that was the time that we stayed a half, we didn't even stay a half day, like up till noon almost, because outside were uh, just an incredible crowd of people. Our first day in the school that we were able to stay all day was with the 101st Airborne Division, all carrying unexplainable equipment to me in their starchly pressed uniforms hundreds of them around, helicopters overhead. This was a scene I had only seen on television. And here I am in the middle of it. So how did I feel? I was frightened to death. 
So that was like our initial introduction to Central High, and it just got worse. I mean, we got flagpoles in her back. We got every every imaginable form of torture that you can imagine. By the time I was 15, I'd already been there and back and learned that you survive. And when I, I remember complaining to Martin Luther King, and he said a line which would serve me the rest of my life. Now, at the time he said it, I was not spiritually old enough to understand it. And I just wanted to say to him, you know, stop it. But I couldn't talk back to adults in any way. So he said to me, uh, Melba, don't be selfish. You're not doing this for yourself. You're doing this for generations unborn, he said specifically. And so um, what Central High School in those first few months taught me was survival, to play the game of survival under any circumstance. Do you want to live or don't you? And so that's a lesson that will sustain you through life. You know, When people call me the N-word or say nasty things to me or, or whatever today, or if I'm walking on the street, I just laugh. I think if you only knew who I was and how long I can play this game with you, do you really, you don't really want to do this. You don't really want to play. So it just made a different person to me. It grew me up right away. I wanted to ask about some of the pressures that you mentioned and the adults even trying to talk about what your obligations were as a 15-year-old student and all of your peers, too. Was that easy to take in as a 15-year-old? No, it was very difficult because I wanted what all 15-year-olds want. I wanted to go to the dance. I wanted to go play with my friends. I wanted to be a normal girl. It does not feel good as a child to be called names all day. This was a painful, awful experience that really I could only talk to with the other of others of the nine. One historian has said that out of the nine of us, five or six are directly blood related. And so all we had for that period of time really was the consolation of each other. And I actually called my friend Carlotta, who has been my friend for, oh, let's say 73 years or so, every few days now. So we were all very close. We all became closer. There are now eight of us left. We all grandmas and grandpas with gray hair like me, and uh, we still are tight, meaning when we come together, it's as though there were no time lapse between our being together the last time. All of this that happened in Little Rock, how did that affect your appreciation of education? In my family, it's the only way out. My mother made it really clear when I was young, education is your only key out the door as a Black person. I was adopted, as you know, by a white family. Dr. and Mrs. George McCabe. So my adopted father founded Sonoma State University. So I went from one home of educators to another home of educators. My father and mother were Quakers. That white set of parents, my father wouldn't go and see me bring home a, a B or an, a, like anywhere my mother was. So it was like, go from the, you know, one house to the other. He was insistent that I go to college, graduate. And so there, in my life, there is no discussion. My children will tell you, there is no discussion that doesn't include how's your homework, how's school, what classes are you taking? Uh, look, could I see that piece of paper, please? I was wondering if you could share a little bit about Daisy Bates. Um, I understand that she was the head of the local NAACP chapter. How was she able to foster community for you guys and, and support you when you were going through what you were going through there? Well, this was a job mostly left to our parents. We met in the beginning pretty regularly at Dr. Bates, at Mrs. Bates' house. And there had to be a central place for the journalists to meet us. Like every day there were news conferences in the beginning and 
she was helpful in gathering us for those news conferences. So for example, every day when the soldiers brought us out of Central High School, they'd have a central spot. Our, our safety had to be, our security had to be engineered, it had to be orchestrated so that the soldiers drove us in a Jeep with a gun, a turret gun in back, turret gun in front, helicopter overhead to her house and let us out there. And there our parents picked us up in the beginning. Or somebody somebody who was identifiable, either a policeman or somebody had to pick us up. We, we couldn't be left. It's not like you get your book bag and walk down the block. Our freedom as teenagers was totally taken away. There was none of that. You're not going to go anywhere, do anything, be anything, or go, you know, without adults with you. And so she coordinated some of that. And then certainly our inter interaction with the media, that part that wasn't coordinated by our parents, you know, like Ernie Green's mother and aunt were teachers. My mother was a professor and most of our parents were intelligent working people who engineered parts of this themselves. This was a cooperative effort. It's sort of like nobody had done it before and yet there were pieces of it that had to fall in place for it to work. Like, for example, the uh, Quakers had to come down and teach us how to stop, drop, and roll. The FBI came and taught us how to shoot guns and how to protect ourselves. And the soldiers were really great. My book is named Warriors Don't Cry because my grandmother used to say, you're a warrior on the battlefield for your Lord. You will serve him until you die, but you will not cry. Now, the soldier told me the same thing. He said, time out, little girl. No more. There is no more crying. You're a soldier. You're a warrior. Keep walking. Somebody hurts you. You don't give them the satisfaction of stopping. So what? You get hit in the back. You get hit in the arm. You stop. He said, your greatest danger comes when you stop and turn around. Don't do that. Keep walking. Keep moving. Get out of the way. Look at where you're going. And you don't have time to cry when you cry. You're, in the beginning, like for the first couple of days, you know, I was Miss Wanny Pot. He said, excuse me, when you cry, your, your, your eyes blur up. You can't see where you're going. You bend your head down. You're going to be killed immediately. Get it together in here, Ladybug. Get it together. And um, so before the soldiers left, they had pretty much turned us into little warriors. You know, we were uh, able to hold our shoulders up, walk ahead. I was able to look right, left without turning my head. The idea is to turn your eyes, roll your eyes right, left. Do not turn your head. If you're going to look at somebody in the back, spin all the way around. Just take a brief moment, spin around all the way, and then keep walking. Be aware if you're walking by open stairs. I mean, they went through a whole schedule of training, and that's how we survived. We would not have survived without the 101st Airborne. No way. Without all those white people that also stepped in and marched with us and for us, every white person down there wasn't angry or, or, or bad. Some of them were protectors, like Mrs. Pickwick, who was my teacher. Mrs. Huckleby, who was an assistant principal, was the tiniest thing ever. But she was also someone who stood on the front stairs of Central High School between us and about 15 young men one day and told them, hey, you, I know your name. I know your mother. I know your father. Back up, you know. And here's this little tiny lady. We're trying to climb the stairs. They're on our case. They've got knives. They've got all sorts of equipment. And she's standing there between us and them. 
so there were good people in there, but there, those people, the teachers were under great pressure from the Ku Klux Klan, the Central High Mothers League, and the community to be bad. Well, I wanted to ask a little bit about journalism. Since your days as a student, you became a journalist and a professor of journalism. And today we're kind of living in a time where, for some reason, many people are doubtful of facts and they dismiss large swaths of the news media as biased. Do you have any thoughts as a journalism professor? We just went through a really rough period. When you have leaders who support lying, when you have leaders who live in a different world reality, you have a problem. So we have many people who chose to follow that. I support journalism as our only pipeline. Do, do, do you pick one station and listen? No. I read the New York Times. I listen to CNN. I listen to MSNBC. I listen to uh, Fox. I look at everything. And then you as an individual have to decide. But you see, in order to spend the time to do that, you have to understand that you cannot look at some stupid thing on the internet and say, okay, that's who I am. I'm QAnon. I'm whatever. And so people do that because they don't take the time to understand the significance of, of, of the proper news. For anyone to stand around and say the things that some of the people are saying in the air, it's, it's embarrassing, it's scary. What difference is there between the mobs that rampage Central High School and the mobs that rampage the Capitol? That was so scary to me because I'm one of those people. I know how the people in the Capitol felt because I've been the victim of a mob before. I've been standing in line waiting to be hanged. I've been in a building, Central High School, where the mob lunged forward to the building. And that first Monday that we were in school, that mob got in that school and chased us down the hall, spat on us, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand one hopes at this point we can listen to each other and try and heal. I don't know if you would consider yourself an activist, but I wonder how you view youth activism when it comes to some of these issues that you were speaking about. I want youth to, like when I taught, I only retired as a professor in 2014. And when I taught, one of the things I insisted on was that the children and my own children be watching the news every day. You gotta know what's going on around you. That's the first thing of activism. And then you gotta participate. Of course, I'm an activist. Uh, not long ago, John Lewis passed away, before he passed away, I have actually on my Instagram this picture of him standing behind me, and I'm in a wheelchair because I had four spine surgeries, and he looked at me and said, hey, Melba, you ain't got time to be sick. What are you doing in that chair? You better get up and get with it. So we don't really have, I don't have time to not be an activist. Every day of my life, I'm right now thinking about the 22 election. What should I be doing? Calling people? Are we going to write letters? What are we going to do? Uh, let's get going. Let's, you know, can I do anything for, with that? Who's not being nice? You know, who needs boycott? What's going on? I mean, you got to be with the program until I'm dead. You know, as the mortician marches out and sets my toes afire, I hope to be called an activist. I'm angry because I couldn't march further with Black Lives Matter. I was moved by that. First of all, I was put in three weeks of depression by the death of Mr. Floyd and the way he died. I'll never forget that white policeman's face as he bent that knee in, as though he had power. And that's the same power I felt white people had over me when I lived in Little Rock under Jim Crow. Exactly the same power. You have the power to put your knee on my neck and press it until I die if you want to. And so for me, I cried, had to go see a therapist. I was hysterical. 
And I loved the marches that went on after that because when we were in Little Rock, we were so happy when the white people marched with us because it meant the cops wouldn't shoot into the crowd. The white people who marched with us were our protection. Now here you have life has moved forward because Black Lives Matter. There were more of our white sisters and brothers on the streets than us. It was a beautiful thing. And to me, it was the one big bit of evidence that we have moved forward. Other than that, at 79, I'll tell you, at 15 or 16, I thought, you know, by the time I'm 50, we, we won't, by the time I'm 79, I will be in a wheelchair, a rocking chair someplace, rocking back and forth happily, knitting, watching TV. We won't even be discussing this. I won't have anything to do. I'll be a bored girl. I'll watch the evening news, cook pies. I mean, come on, who knew I'd be going to, I go to more activism meetings a week. I go to church three times a week on now on Zoom, but I'm saying I'm as active as I was when I was 20. It's just in a different way, you know. I would have bet you that it would have all been solved by now because uh, this is 65 years, come on. But we're nowhere near solution. So it demands that we continue to work. That was Dr. Melba Patillo Beals, one of the Little Rock Nine. Her memoir about her experience integrating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, is called Warriors Don't Cry. <laughs> 